Hello and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health, a very special Christmas episode. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And today we've got an absolute cracker for oh, you. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> um, we do though because it's our Christmas episode. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so today we are going to be looking at a special issue of the Medical Journal of Australia that they, I think, do every year. Yeah, at least it... recently. I, I think it's something that they've started within the past five years or yeah. so. Uh, I know the BMJ have been known to do this for a long time, but they take submissions and I think that they run it in the form of a competition. Mm. So people submit articles that are a bit amusing, sometimes Christmas themed, um, but generally wouldn't make it into the journal. And um, I believe there is a prize as well. I read somewhere about uh, a Christmas hamper that they get yeah. for winning it. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, we, we're going to have a look at some of the articles that made it into the, into the journal this Christmas. Um, so yeah, starting off, Courtney, I believe you've looked at one that's very Christmassy. That's right. So this is our, our most Christmassy uh, article for, for this episode, and it's called What Would Happen If Santa Claus Was Sick? His Impact on Communicable Disease Transmission. <laughs> so yeah, essentially it is all about if Santa Claus was sick, what would happen to our global population? So it's it's a it's a modelling um, article, and they model different kinds of diseases that Santa might get or might not get, um, and what would happen to our population. So it's, it's pretty interesting. So in science speak, are we saying that Santa could be a vector for tra right. for transmitting? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So Santa Claus could be the the transmitter, could be the the one single cause of disease for for certain populations, um, and this essentially models how effective he would be as a vector. I okay. guess. Yeah. And what, what diseases are they looking at? So, so they look at uh, influenza and measles. So influenza is just the flu or the, the common flu at the time, I guess. I'm not exactly sure what influenza strain they used, but um, yeah, they looked at influenza and measles uh, transmission by Santa Claus on Christmas Eve only. So they essentially looked at the number of children Santa Claus might visit and adults as well, because it's, you know, family homes. Um, and they modeled different percentages of transmission rates and things like that to see exactly how much effect Santa Claus could have. <laughs> <laughs> mm, oh, man, I, it's so, so silly, but also yeah. very, very and, interesting. And you you, said, you were telling me how many pages of supplementary material to describe the oh, study? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so this study, it was, it was lovely to read. It was a really, really well-written study. Um, but the main study is two pages long. But there was a link at the end of the page, like most journal articles, that has the supplementary information. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this article has one. And I clicked it and it's 17 pages long. Wow. <laughs> and it had all of the specifics of the modeling and things like that. And it also had all the code that they'd written to try and look at these different models and all sorts of information. Mm. Um, but I didn't go too much into that because it's very technical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, yeah, so the, the, the author, um, Yuki, I want to say Farouz, maybe, okay. um, I'm sorry That's if okay. I pronounced that wrong. Um, they've obviously put a lot of effort into this article, which is fantastic, um, because it does also help explain a lot of real world things that, that we do do in studies, like the modeling of transmission, but it's put it in a, a fun and Christmassy way, which is really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as I said, they've kind of covered two different types of conditions, measles and influenza. And basically what they found is that Santa Claus 
can have a significant impact on our health. Um, so Santa Claus, uh, when he was infected with influenza, there was a high level of transmission, um, but it was very dependent on whether the children would see him or not. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, if the children were all good and they stayed in their beds and they, they didn't see Santa Claus putting the presents under the Christmas tree, there was less of an infection rate than if they did get out of bed and see him and things like that. Okay. Um, it was also very dependent also on how well Santa Claus looked after himself and things like hand washing. So if Santa Claus did go through the hand washing procedures and wore a mask and things like that, then the infection rate was very low. So would Santa have to do that after each home that he visited? I would think so, which means that Christmas might end up going for two days. Wow. <laughs> it would be a very long procedure. Um, but in terms of measles, they actually modelled it, modeled it depending on what vaccination level the, the population had. So, of course, that was very dependent on, on whether the infection kind of uh, went through the population or, or not. Um, and again, there was that effect of the children being there or not being there as well. So, right. yeah, and so, that's and very silly. What assumptions are they making about how what proportion of all children he manages to visit? So they did do a wide variety of, of assumptions in terms of the amount of children that he saw, but I think I read somewhere that they assumed they visited more than 90% of all children. Yeah. Um, and then they did a varied rate as to how many people were in the houses and all that kind of stuff. They also looked at differences in disease transmission, so whether there was a 10% infection rate, a 20%, that kind of thing. Um, there was also this thing called a Santa factor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and from what I could see, this is what they've got written here, is when Santa Claus was infected with influenza and contact with children was as, as efficient as that of generic adults, for transmitting disease, Santa factor equaled one. So if children and adult equaled in terms of the amount of disease or, or when or how they could get their disease, then Santa factor equaled one. And they changed that as well. Right. Um, so they actually, they looked at a lot of different variables <laughs> in this model. <laughs> um, but I, I, do have, I do have some questions. Okay. Now, the one thing, the one obvious thing that was missing in my mind, is that Santa is this, this magical being, right? Does Santa really experience the same diseases that we would? Or would he have the potential to introduce a new disease? Yeah. Because, you know, magical being, we're, we're very different. We've seen before that diseases can um, go through different species and have very, very different reactions. Yep. Um, so, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm wondering if there might be diseases that are more prevalent in reindeer that Santa could potentially ah, be more exposed to. That, that's right. Like the swine flu yeah, but for reindeer. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah that, that would probably be a paper for next year, I would I think. I think so, yeah, yeah. We better get on it. We better learn how to model <laughs> and uh, we can do it ourselves. Um, but they might have some information about that where reindeer exist. Is that mm. Canada? Canada and uh, places like Scotland. Yeah. And uh, Russia, I think, as well, okay. you know, and around the Arctic. Yeah. So I wonder if they'd have some information on yeah. reindeer diseases that we could potentially get. Yeah. The, <laughs> um, the Centre for Disease Control might. Yeah. They would know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, there, there's some things that they haven't quite looked at. And we also don't know whether measles and influenza would have the same impact on Santa Claus. Because, you know, if he gets very sick, mm. he can't deliver all those presents. That's true. You know, that's that's a lot of effort for someone who's got measles. So it would be. You know, there's there's other things that maybe this study haven't taken into account that yeah. they probably should have, or that could have been put in that supplementary information. <laughs> the 17 pages. That's right. We could have made it 18 or 19 pages. Yeah, but it's great to see research resources being used in this way, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a genius study that allows people to put a fun. Um, interpretation on something that does actually happen in the real world as well. So it's, I feel like this is something that a lot of people would be able to understand because we all, we all know Santa Claus, particularly here in Western countries and things like that. Um, and we know that he visits a lot of people. Yeah. So the idea of him being the vector to spread the flu and things like that is not like 
it's far-fetched, but it's still within the reason of our imagination. Yeah. Um, and it means that we can apply this to other situations as well. Yeah. So it can help people learn about infections and why we need to wash hands and things like that. In a fun way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So It's almost good a on bit them. like a Christmas gift on its own, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man, I need to get up on my Christmas puns. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, it is a bit of a gift, this, this article. Um, well, like they say, a manuscript's not just for Christmas, it's for life. <laughs> oh no yes yeah. um, alright so yeah I think that's that's mostly what I have to say about this okay. article I do commend them for writing it I think it is very what, very good what were the sort of the main conclusions that they drew what did they, what did they say about the actual disease rates etc oh, let me see um, so the thing is this particular study didn't have a clear method and and results section and, and all this kind of stuff it was more of a i guess it would be a like a mini article or something like that but essentially what they found was that disease transmission by santa claus does potentially have a really big impact on public health um so we all need to be careful if we see santa claus he yep. might be infected we don't know <laughs> <laughs> um but the impact of the visits by santa claus were markedly reduced when the contact with children was limited and also whether the vaccination levels were high okay. or not, particularly when it comes to, to measles. Yep. Um, it was also important uh, to minimise the contact with Santa Claus when he was distributing his presents. Yep. <laughs> all things that make sense, right? That's right. Yeah. All things that make sense. All things that we, we try to learn and, and, <laughs> and share information about. So... Yes. I, I had a quick scan of the article and took one thing from right at the very end, a, a bit of a message from the authors. That's who right. Kind of Editorialising at the end. Yeah. And they said that we hope that Santa Claus will distribute only presents this year, not pathogens, and that his laughter is the only thing found to be infectious. Oh, what a good <laughs> message. <laughs> so plenty of so, kind of quasi puns and uh, right. innuendos there. So excellent. Oh, good on them. All right. Such a good article. Well, in that same very issue of the Medical Journal of Australia, uh, I had a look at a couple of kind of lighter, fun articles as well. Um, the first one that I noticed was one called Repurposing Med Medical Equipment, and I have to apologise as well because I didn't get the author's details. But... Oh, I might have them. Yeah. Um, maybe. No, I don't. No? Well, we'll certainly put them in the show notes so that people... Uh, can be acknowledged <laughs> and people can find them if they want. Uh, but so it is in the MJA, so you will be able to find it in the Christmas, um, yes. I wanted to say, episode, episode. edition. <laughs> yeah, the Christmas issue. That's right. Uh, so there was a list of bog-standard medical tools and implements oh, there um, was. that they've talked about repurposing, you know, to have a, a, a more practical use in everyday life. Some of them understandable, some of them questionable i think <laughs> yeah i think so as well i think some of them might make feel people feel a bit queasy but yep we'll we'll work through the list and let's have a look so the first one is i'm going to definitely get this pronunciation wrong but the sphag momo mana manometer i think it, it's it's sphig sphigmo manometer Sphigmo mon, mon, yeah, yeah, that one. That one. Okay, so it's definitely, it's listed in the article, so it read is. the article. Uh, but it's the thing that measures your blood pressure that goes around your arm and they inflate it. Because uh, they had photos as well, pictures to go with all of these descriptions. So they're saying here that it makes a great stubby holder. Yeah, which is very, very good for Australian Christmases because mm. we definitely need stubby holders for Christmas. Yeah. Especially when it's going to be 36 here in Perth. That's right. Supposedly. Exactly. And the other thing is that it um, inflates. It might be really good in the pool. Right, okay. As well, so to it keep, could float. To keep, to keep a beer upright That's right, in the yeah. Pool. Okay, never thought about that. Yeah. Um, and they're also suggesting as well that it can be placed in the freezer before you used to keep beverages cold. Ah, um, yeah, okay. That sounds very good. I wonder if you'd need to wet it first. So that there was... I'd say so, but, you know, that's that's doable. Yeah. Because we're reusing it anyway, so that should be fine. And then the cord that inflates it uh, is also doubles as a handy retrieval cord in case the can is placed too far away. <laughs> could, or... you, could you 
imagine that though. They've like got the machine and their fears like on the other side of the table. You just see someone pulling from the cord. It just goes everywhere. I love it. It'd be great. Yeah, it's just the height of Christmas laziness <laughs> That's right. right there. When you've um, eaten too much. <laughs> All right. So I think we've covered that in sufficient detail. <laughs> Uh, so a CPAP driver is an excellent milk frother for your coffee. Yes. So I did look up what that is, um, and it's the continuous positive airway pressure mm -hmm. uh, driver, and the, the driver is essentially the thing that delivers the air. So there's, right. there's the, like the actual air going through the tube. Okay. That's what it is. So it makes total sense that yeah. it would be a good milk, milk frother. And it's the thing that people with sleep apnea use to stop them snoring and stop That's breathing. That's right, yeah. So it kind of helps them breathe throughout the night. Keeps their airways open. That's right. So, yeah. So they're saying that uh, at 10 centimetres pressure, the gas flow of around 15 litres a minute provides good frothiness without too much mess. Yeah, very good. Uh, and it can still be used for your afternoon sleep if the coffee hasn't worked. So <laughs> <laughs> Definitely necessary. So everyone wins. <laughs> In that situation. And even if you don't like coffee, you could have a, like a hot chocolate or something with froth, frothy milk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then likely need to go and take a nap That's with right. your CPAP machine. Which is perfect for Christmas. Now, the next one's probably the one, uh, it's probably not the most queasy one, but it's one of the most queasy ones on the list. Yeah, it's a little bit gross. Yeah. So what, what have we got there, we, So we've got that obstetric forceps can be used to get hot food from the oven with just one hand. Okay. And so for all of those who don't know what obstetric forceps are, they essentially help, they're like big prongs that help deliver the baby if the baby's not coming out the way it should be. They kind of go inside and grab the baby and you can pull the baby out. So is it like a giant set of tongs? It is like a giant set of tongs, right. which is why it's perfect to get hot food out of the oven. <laughs> with just one hand. That's with just one hand. <laughs> Um, and they're saying now that they're easy to come by, these forceps, because caesarean section is the industry standard for safe delivery of babies these days. So forceps are becoming nearly redundant. That's right. So we probably have a big supply and not yeah. enough demand. And so that hopefully would reduce the need for people um, to use secondhand forceps. <laughs> oh dear. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want that. Probably use the ones that are sterilized. Um, but it also has said that obstetric forceps can also make great salad servers as oh, well. So multi multi use. That's right. You know, it's good for everything on the Christmas table. So perhaps they should keep manufacturing them, regardless of the. That's the right. Standard. Yeah, and but they have to go through the hospital first, so we can still call them obstetric forceps. Right. <laughs> Excellent. So they recommend washing them after delivering the chicken. Yes. That's what they're saying. Yes. Okay. Particularly if you're going to be handling salads afterwards. <laughs> like that makes sense. Especially if it's raw chicken, right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Or turkey even. <laughs> I wonder if the turkey would be too big for these forceps. Or oh, if it would... uh, you know what? I'm sure they have special obstetric forceps for, for large babies. For large babies. And you could yeah. maybe translate to a large turkey. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if they have to use them in, in animal births, like large animals, like horses and stuff like that. Oh, I feel like you'd have to in, mm. in some cases. So with potentially a, a turkey or a giant ham could. Yeah. I do know this is a bit gross, though. I do know that, like with cows, mm. I know that the vet does use their hands and like grabs the the baby I've seen cow that. out. Yeah. yeah, they have to reach right inside. Exactly. So they might not yeah. have forceps, but they just use their <laughs> hands instead. But a baby cow is probably at a slight lower temperature than a than a chicken that's coming out of the oven or a turkey. Well, that's like, true. Yeah. That is true. They can use their hands. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I feel like we may have spent enough time on... I think we might have. ...obstetric forceps. Um, so the next one is... This is a slightly smaller version. Artery forceps. Yeah, so they're like... The way that I see them is like little tiny... They're almost like scissors. So they look like little scissors, except on the end there's um, kind of flat bits. So they're really good at like nitpicking things and trying to find all the detailed stuff. Um, and do they use those to open up arteries or to clamp arteries? What are they normally? I think they might be used to clamp okay. arteries, but I would not quote me on that. As, as a cardio surgeon, Ooh, you're not. <laughs> that's right, as an official cardiovascular surgeon. Um, <laughs> no, that's a joke, please don't quote me on that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're used to like clamp certain things, um, but we can also use them to remove salmon bones. Okay. Now, salmon is, uh, and particularly seafood, is a very prominent 
Christmas food that we have here in Australia. So I feel like that could be very useful. I, as someone who's eaten salmon and continues to eat salmon, <laughs> Me too, yep. particularly fresh salmon, uh, I would say this is incredibly useful um, use for this. I agree. You don't, you don't want to be eating salmon bones. No, it's, it's one of the most frustrating things ever. Salmon or any other fish bones for that matter. Exactly. Yeah. Getting a fish that hasn't quite been deboned properly. That's right. And then if one gets stuck in your throat, you know, yeah. then you'd have to go to hospital and then you'd be spending Christmas Day there. That's and right. that wouldn't necessarily be the most fun thing to do. Yeah. You don't really want a sore throat over Christmas. No. Especially no. in this weather. Exactly. <laughs> you feel like you've been robbed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next one is... This is this is where it gets a little bit more gross. Yes. So what do you think? Uh, so what do we have there, Courtney? So, so we have that cardboard bedpans might make excellent fruit or serving bowls. Yeah. And what are they usually used for? Why don't you tell us, Craig? <laughs> this could be your job. <laughs> right. So for people who aren't able to make it to the bathroom on their own or, or easily, they tend to go into the go to the bathroom in a bedpan. That's right. That gets yeah. emptied so it's, out by it's a It's underneath the bed, isn't it? Yeah. I think so. I'm pretty sure it's something that sits underneath the bed. Um, obviously, we're not recommending using secondhand ones in this case. <laughs> no. And there is a photo of this with the article as well, and it is actually cardboard. Like it's, It looks like recycled cardboard. So I can't imagine you'd be able to use it more than once anyway. No, no. So I guess if, if there's excess in the hospital, then we can repurpose them for, for serving bowls and things like that. And, and on a related note, they say that the good old bluey serves as an excellent placemat because the waterproof lining protecting, you know, protects the table surface. And this is, serves a similar purpose for protecting from spills of that sort of nature that's from right, getting onto... That's right. So I think that's normally something that's placed on the bed, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, underneath the patient. That's right. Um, so if they happen to be incontinent or they have they miss the bedpan or something like that, the bluey stops the, you know, the waste from going onto the mattress. But it can also be used as a placemat. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got very messy children, this might be something that would protect your your dining table or something yeah, like that. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially over Christmas when there's, there's gravy and cranberry sauce and exactly. all sorts of stuff flying around. You know? Yeah, and then all you have to do is just, like, bundle up your placemats and chuck them in the bin. Yeah. Good to go. So pay a visit to your local hospital and see what they've got. <laughs> Available. See if they've got any excess. Yeah. Um, and then the last one that they, they talked about was the uh, urine dipstick and jar. Now, I'm not sure. Have you done one of these before? I've done something similar. I haven't, but you I've haven't, seen it. But you've seen it? Yeah. yeah so and I've taken urine samples of people before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's basically like this stick and it changes colour depending on what's happening in your pee. Um, but it creates a very nice colour palette. And it might be very good as, a, as a, a sample for when you're painting your office or your home. So if you, after Christmas, have decided that you want to renovate your house, you could get one of these and get a very nice colour palette. Yeah. And so what Courtney's talking about there is that as a guide for what each colour means, there's a, a number of little squares that appear. That's right. And it tells you this pink means this and then orange means this and yellow means this. And yeah. So it could also be a personalised colour palette. Yeah. So like you could pee on one of these sticks and be like, yes, I'm going to paint my house yeah. the colours that my pee represents. And you could refer to the living room as pregnancy pink. That's or, right. Yeah. yeah whatever the <laughs> colour palette's saying. Oh, this is so <laughs> terrible. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yes. So anyway, there's a whole lot of excellent suggestions for repurposing medical equipment. That's right. And, and remember, this was published in the MJA. Yeah. And it's not to be understated how useful this might be in, exactly. in, terms, in times of striving for sustainability and uh, not, you know, minimising waste and whatnot. So, exactly. Yeah. So moving right along from there, uh, we have another article. Uh, now, the title of this article is called Blondes Do Not Have More Fun. A non-blinded crossover field study. <laughs> well, thank goodness, because and we're both brunettes. Yes. And they would have been very sad if we were missing out on fun <laughs> because we're not blonde. And I actually did make a note of the author. So the author is Zetna, Dennis Zetna and, and company. Yeah. So what, what's the, the gist of this article, Courtney? All right. So essentially with this study, they were looking at a questionnaire that level that 
records the amount of fun that people have and their feelings associated with it. Um, and they wanted to look at the differences between people who had blonde hair and people who had not blonde hair. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and, why, and why were they doing this? Why were they doing this? Yeah. Why does anyone do anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, they cite a, a, a gentleman by the name of Sir Roderick David Stewart. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, Some of you might know who this person is. Yeah, so he proposed this theory back in 1978. Uh, he, he now goes by the name Rod Stewart. That's right. Um, but yeah, there was he, he wrote a, a, an opinion piece <laughs> called Blondes have more fun. That's right. Yeah. yeah, which I think was quite popular and, and embraced by people around the world. Exactly. It was very popular. But yeah. there was never any studies to demonstrate whether blondes do actually yeah. have more so fun. So they needed to validate that theory. Exactly. Yeah. Which is fortunately what the MJA has, has published now. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Man. So what was the study designed for this? Yes. So this particular study, they, they needed to measure fun. Mm -hmm. So what better way to measure fun than to send people down a water slide? Okay. And just, just before you move on from there, if you're looking for a population of blonde people, where would you go? I don't know. Where did these people go? Anywhere? No. So... <laughs> That's a I tough question. <laughs> I, I believe this study was set in Denmark. Was it? Yeah. Are you sure about that? Yeah, so... Was it set in Denmark or were they Danish researchers? So there's a convenience sample of 21 healthy Danish researchers. Ah, okay. I don't, yeah. I don't think they were there, though, because it was a medical conference. Okay. So I think they were, they were at a medical conference that had, okay. like, these water slides available. Right, okay. But it just happened that the group of them were all Danish researchers. Oh, okay. I think that well, was it, it what It was happened. conducted in the European summer, so it's definitely somewhere in Europe because it was the 1st yeah, to 2nd okay. of June um, 2018. All right. And so regardless, Danish people, a good number of them seem to have been classified as blonde. And I, I do like the description of the sample. So there were 10 blondes, 9 non-blondes, and then 4 had missing data in that <laughs> they were bald. Which makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you, and you can't always check other parts of the body, can you? Because sometimes people have different coloured hair. That's right. Upstairs yeah. and downstairs. And so. uh, Well, we are assuming that um, Sir Roderick Stewart was talking about head hair. Yes. In terms of being blonde. I believe so. And he did have a shock of blonde hair at the time. That's right. But I don't believe it was naturally blonde. Ah, okay. I and I don't think might... they took that into account yeah. either. Hmm. That's, that's true. That's very One interesting. One of the possible flaws in the design. <laughs> yeah. So what was the intervention and what did they do? Yeah, so, so they had their group of um, blonde and non-blonde researchers and they got them to go down this water slide. Now, they did a couple of uh, different types of slides, I guess. So it was all, all the same slide except um, for the first time everyone went down, they had to uh, stay sitting. And then the second time they had to lie down on their back as they went down. And they also looked at the differences in terms of levels of fun depending on how you rode the water slide. Um, and then they also, so everyone went through this twice and in between each slide, I think they had to go have a shower. Which they refer to as a washout. Yes, or a wash in as well. Yeah, I think they had to wash in to be compliant with the, the exactly. parks, water parks policies. That's so right. They, so yes. they weren't in, you know, um, Muddying the waters, so to speak. That, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, so yeah, they went through. They went and rode the water slides, and then they had to do a survey afterwards um, to see if anything had changed in terms of okay. the mood, or whether they had more fun or less fun. Or yeah, yeah. So they got two rides each. They did one sitting and one lying down. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, what, and what did they find? I don't remember. No. What did they find, Craig? Well, the primary question was whether blondes had more fun or not. And they yes. found that blondes didn't have more fun than non-blondes. But do you, do you think that might just be because they didn't have a big enough sample? I think there's a good chance. <laughs> a sample of 20, 23, I think it was. Yeah. Four of whom had missing data, I think. Yeah, that's but, a lot of bald people yeah, as well. Potentially, yeah, the, the sample size might be an issue there. Yeah. yeah. And I suspect that the confidence intervals would have been quite Very wide. Very large, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, 
what they also found was that lying down was significantly faster and more fun than sitting up going yes. down the slide. I can um, confirm yeah. that that is definitely more fun. <laughs> and then they, they make the conclusion that Rod Stewart's assertion is erroneous in at least one setting and that further studies in other settings are warranted to find out if blondes do have more fun. That's right, and particularly have larger sample sizes. But the one thing I, I particularly like is that um, I'm going to read out what they've written in the article, and it says, a possible reason for our divergent results is that Stewart requested blondes of a particular height. And the quote is, give me a blonde that's a six feet two. Right. Now, what they reported is that none of their blonde participants actually met that height criteria. Okay. Their height, their highest, their tallest blonde was six foot one. So, you know, that might also be something as to why we haven't got the same results as uh, Stuart here. Interesting. And I, I seem to recall one of Rod Stewart's wives, and I'm not sure if she's still his wife, what may have fit that criteria, those criteria. I yeah. actually, I went on his Wikipedia page. And it does have a little bit about his his past partners, and all four of them are tall blondes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one I'm thinking of in particular is Penny Lancaster. Ah, yes. I seem to recall she was a good few inches taller than he was. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So I mean, he must know what he's talking about then, because he's he's got a large sample of, of this yeah. kind of and, person. And he's Ooh. penned other opinion pieces such as "If You Think I'm Sexy" and exactly yeah, and the like. So. Yeah, and Maggie May, you know. Yeah, so he's he's a, a philosopher and potentially a scientist as That's well. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is definitely an area where where they probably need more investigation to to figure out what's exactly going on with hair colour. I, I think the authors are, are onto something when they say that further studies in other settings are warranted because I'm not sure that just measuring people's fun going down a water slide is gonna is gonna really cut it. That is very true, and I, I feel like. Their, where they got their sample from as well because you know they are all researchers from um, Denmark from Denmark <laughs> exactly you know it, it doesn't really reflect a general population yeah. either there could be a bit of selection bias in that there's a lot of blonde people in the Nordic countries that's as right. well yeah so. and that you know there might even be a thing where we're more um well in this case maybe because there's an equal number of blondes and brunettes and they haven't found anything, it might be to do with the occupation they chose as well. Yeah. So different occupations maybe have more blondes that are more fun. Yeah. That's right. Blonde researchers might be a p peculiar group as That's well. That's right, yeah. yeah. Compared to like blonde shop assistants. Exactly. Or... or it could be the other way around in that brunette research um, people are more fun and therefore it equals out in that particular occupation. Yeah. I mean, I've got to be careful what I say because my wife's blonde. <laughs> well, my partner's blonde as well, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to say that blondes don't have more fun, but yes. this well, brunette I, you know, does have a lot of fun. That's right. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the message of this is that there is equal opportunity, no matter what your hair colour, to have fun, yep. in particular on water slides. That's right. Yep. So further studies are warranted. That's right. It's inconclusive. I think so. And for now, I probably won't be putting that song in the jukebox. <laughs> If I even have a jukebox. <laughs> you even have one, that's right. <laughs> it's the 1960s again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's as far as the research, the original research goes, That's that was uh, all that we looked at from the MJA. But there are some other articles, there might have been eight or nine that they published for yeah, the Christmas issue. Yeah, there is issue. a couple. And we didn't talk about the winner of their particular competition either, so you can always go read that study. And that one, I think it's about... Um, what happens when articles get rejected uh, and how researchers kind of respond to that. Right. Um, I have read it. It is kind of interesting. <laughs> they come up with some kind of acronym, like a misery scale That's or right, something. That's right, the misery scale. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it is worth checking out. I think we may have avoided that one just to to avoid boring people who maybe aren't that involved in publishing research because exactly, it's yeah. quite technical. Yeah, I think we've chosen ones that are... <laughs> <laughs> have broad appeal, hopefully. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so what I thought we'd do to finish this episode is just have a reflection on the year just gone mm. um, about the state of health and other issues that kind of, you know, might affect health. Um, and then a few thoughts on the year ahead, so 2020, you know, predictions or observations of where we think things might go. Yeah. Um, so, to start off, you know, obviously there is a bit of doom and gloom around, as there always is, you know, in the media and, and whatnot. Um, one thing that I found was pretty 
interesting and, and kind of alarming was that non-communicable diseases are responsible for more than 70% of deaths around the world now. But we, we can actually consider that a good thing. So, so hear me out with this perspective. With the reduction in infections and things like that, which cause immediate death, we're now allowing populations to get older and therefore, in, in the end, they do experience um, conditions that are chronic. So they are living longer, but now we've just got to come up with a way to kind of help the, the chronic diseases. Yep. And I guess it was the next line as well. So 15 million people are dying prematurely around the world. Yeah, okay, that's bad. Yeah, and 85% of those premature deaths are in lower middle income countries, mm. which is quite surprising given that those lifestyle type diseases have often been um, associated with higher income countries. Yeah, do you think that's something to do with maybe like the spread of ideas from the high income countries so things like fast food and, and all that kind of stuff is yeah. now spreading to to middle and lower income countries and therefore because it's cheaper and easier it's becoming yeah. a bigger thing yeah so the article i read cited tobacco uh, yes. physical inactivity yeah. uh, alcohol diet so that would be the fast food and then air pollution uh, as, as major drivers of that um, and I guess we have interventions in place in, in higher income settings to tackle some of those things, you know, some of the public health messages and the pre prevention messages that come out. Mm. You know, we do fund NGOs to, to try and promote health and exactly. healthy lifestyles. And like Australia's got some of the best smoking prevention um, yeah. interventions that are in the world. Um, and it's probably something to do with the fact that we can actually spend money on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that'd make a huge difference. Definitely, and, and I think that's probably something we might flag for a future episode is talking to someone from somewhere like the Cancer Council or the Heart Foundation, you know, about those, those public health messages that, they, that mm. they promote and the programs that they run. Um, and the other thing I, th I found quite alarming is that suicide is the third leading cause of death in 15 to 19-year-olds around the world. Uh, and they've basically drawn a bit of a, an association between a lot of these uh, non-communicable diseases and mental illness, mm. which might result in suicide. So, Do you know whether that's more in men or women? It doesn't. It didn't Don't actually say. specify. So it would be interesting to see that. I know in age groups older than 19 years and up to about 40 or 50, men are definitely leading mm. women in terms of suicide rates. I think suicide might be the biggest killer of men under a certain it age is, in yeah, Australia. Yeah, I think it's under 40. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. So following on from that, I think a lot of the conversations that I've seen playing out in the media and um, news stories about people like Greta Thunberg and mm. whatnot, who's the <laughs> time person of the year, youngest time person of the year ever. Um, so climate change and sustainable living. Oh, it's a huge one, isn't it? I think it's yeah. been a, a massive topic for this year. Um, particularly with, for example, the, the fires that have been going on in Sydney as well. That's kind of made everyone realise that climate change is here. And the yeah. other thing as well is that um, Adelaide and South Australia, I'm pretty sure this week, um, on average, is 16 degrees higher than it has ever been right. um, in previous weeks of December. So we're experiencing huge temperatures here and that could partially be because of climate change. Yeah, and I think, I think at, across Australia during one of the days this week, the average temperature, maximum temperature for one of the days was over 40 degrees, the yeah. average across the, the whole, of whole country. And we've got places going above 50 yeah. now as well, which is crazy hot and there yeah. is huge health implications when it comes to things Massive. like that. Yeah, and we could probably flag that our next episode is going to be with an expert in this area, mm. in sort of um, urban planning and uh, sustainable city design and whatnot. Exactly, and how that can affect health. Yeah, so he's going to have a chat to us about that, which will be, which will be really good. Yeah, That'll come I out can tell you right now, it is really good. <laughs> <laughs> That'll come out in January. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, my take on the climate change debate and dialogue and rhetoric and, you know, the politicians and whatnot is that this really does seem to be a generational thing. There's a generational difference between the baby boomer generation and maybe a, a one or two below them. And then people, I'd say my generation, because I think we're probably about a generation apart, 
Um, my generation, we started getting taught in school about the ozone layer right. being yep. depleted in Australia and recycling and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I know that that education has become more specific and more intense as, you know, after, since I left school. Mm. So I feel like it really is about education and awareness. And that's why a lot of the, the voices on climate change, apart from progressive parties like the Greens, you know, where they, that's part of their, their ideology, is really been driven by the younger uh, population in society. And it's probably not until they're the ones who have more influence in decision-making and, you know, positions of power in government and whatnot, um, that we're going to see real sustainable change, exactly. you know, and big steps. And, you know, people were actually putting a cost on climate change and what it's doing as opposed to thinking, well, I'm 60 and I've probably only got another 15 to 20 years to, to live, so what do I really care you know, I'd rather just keep my money in the bank and not harm my finances or, you know, be inconvenienced. And yeah. it's probably a bit cynical, but I, but I think that, you there's know. There's a number of them. Yeah. Um, but the other thing as well is, like, we can see the effects now. Um, yeah. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I guess, when I was learning about it all, it didn't seem like it was there yet. But now we can see it. We can see exactly what's happening to our environment and things like that. And also, you know, with the whole um, David Attenborough Seven Worlds that's come out as well, you know, that you can see, you literally see everything that's happening because of our behaviour. And it's just become so important of a topic that we, we do need to do something now because otherwise, you know, we're all going to be sick and unwell and, you know, the planet's going to be in flames and, you know, it's going to be a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's we need to watch that space and you yeah. know, keep our finger on the pulse. And I think we probably will have a look at a, a an episode that focuses on climate change and the environment and the living environment. I feel like we have to. It's our yeah. duty as a science yeah. communicators. We have to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that's you can expect to see that sometime next year. Uh, and the other thing, which is more specific to Australia, is is just looking at the private health insurance system and the struggles they continue to have. Uh, as people leave private health insurance, um, they feel like they're not getting good value. Uh, often healthy people, so people who are placing the least burden on the and the least cost on the system are, are leaving, leaving the kind of sicker and more dependent people in the system who are using you know high cost healthcare, etc. And so premiums continue to go up, and then so people leave because premiums are going up, and it's a bit of a vicious cycle. So that's going to be something interesting to see how that plays out over the coming years and how, the, how our policymakers and governments try and address that. Um, what do you think is going to happen? What's your prediction? Yeah, I, I mean, governments have done things in the past like uh, offered rebates for people to join by certain ages, you know, uh, yeah, and okay. that sort of thing. If you're un, it used to be if you're under 32 and you joined, you got a discount that lasted, that continued past the age of 32. And if you joined after 32, you didn't have that. Um, but, yeah, it's a bit of a wicked policy problem because in the end mm. we all have to pay for healthcare whether yeah. we're paying it through our taxes or individually you know through private insurance um, and it's obviously not made simpler by the fact that we have this split level of health system in right. Australia between the states and the, the Commonwealth um, but yeah I, I suspect that the private health insurers are going to need to rework their business models mm. a bit. Yeah uh, I'd agree if they're losing customers it's all about kind of from a business perspective, it's all about regaining those customers to get the regular yeah. input. So that's going to take, I think it's going to take a joint effort between the public and the private sector. Mm. So I think the government's going to have to be involved in that. So yeah. uh, not an expert in that area, but we'll see what, what <laughs> happens see what there. Happens. Yeah, yeah. We, we may try and get an expert on to have a chat about that, like a health economist or, yeah. or someone who deals with that area. Yeah, we could definitely do that. Yeah. I feel like considering my age, I should know about private health insurance. <laughs> but I really don't know much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do have a, a great universal public healthcare system. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people choose to leave private healthcare now is that they can get a, a fairly similar level of service in the public sector without having to pay every month, you know? So yeah, we'll see what happens. Mm. It's definitely one to, one to look, you know, keep an eye on. It is. Um, yeah. I did have uh, one other thing as a reflection of this year. Um, we, you know, bringing it back to Santa Claus and the transmission of measles, we've had outbreaks of measles this year in Australia um, and there's been increases in outbreaks of measles around the world. 
Um, and that's because of the fluctuation of uh, vaccinations in our populations. Yeah. So what we've kind of seen recently is that we hit a peak and then the number of vaccinations, because it, you know measles kind of became not really a problem anymore for a long time, that vaccination rate dropped off. And suddenly we started seeing measles again. Right. And the other really interesting thing is that uh, polio, which is a con condition that we basically wiped out, um, they've had their first case in Singapore okay. this year as well. So something, again, where vaccinations have kind of stopped this disease, mm. we've just started seeing it again as well. Yeah, it's that's really concerning. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I know, I know even rates of HIV and that sort of thing have been increasing as well. So yeah. it's, I guess people can't become complacent when they know that there's a treatment. That's right. Or, you know, something that they can take. Or if it becomes not really a problem anymore in the yeah. population. So if you don't, if it's something you're not thinking about, then you're probably not going to act about on it either. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. really interesting year. Maybe these things, are, these events are sent to remind us. You know, we need to be <laughs> need to be diligent. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, just to finish off with, wanted to just reflect on thoughts on the year ahead, and what's what's what do you think is going to be you know the topic of the day next year? Oh, or? Okay. The main topic for next year. Um. Oh, there could be so many options. I feel like climate change is probably still going to be huge. Um. Otherwise, I don't know. Yeah. That's a tough one. I feel like there's a lot of information coming out about artificial intelligence and machine learning ah, at the moment yes. and how that's impacting on health services and lowering the costs of healthcare and mm -hmm. automating a lot of processes that normally would have to be done by a human. So you're saying that maybe next year health might become more efficient? Yeah, and and in the subsequent years as well. Um, no, only next year. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of next year, that's it. Yeah, but that's prefaced on data being, administrative data being readily available and, and fairly easily accessible for people doing that work, yeah. you know, that research and development. Uh, and that's something that's, you know, been a bit of a, I guess, a, a contentious issue over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, there's obviously privacy considerations and, um, you know, bureaucratic kind of considerations and whatnot in each jurisdiction that, mm -hmm. that provides those data. So, yeah, hopefully that the data become more easily available and that those risks of privacy breaches, et cetera, are managed or we find a way of managing them that's acceptable to, to the community. Maybe by the end of next year, everyone will kind of forget the issues with my health record as well. And that was, my health record was an implementation by the government to, to bring together all of our records into one system. And there was, there was issues with it in terms of privacy and all that kind of stuff, because people were very worried about that. In terms of a research perspective, it is brilliant. Like if we could have access to that data, there's a lot of research potential there. Um, but there was a huge uproar because it was change. So maybe at the end of next year, that will die down and will become more of a, a thing that's accepted within our society. Yeah, for the greater good. For the greater good, that's yeah, right. To allow us to identify where the issues are across the whole population. and So we can improve efficiency and, and health and well-being and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think a bit of education needs to, to go into that to educate people on what that actual process is and that people aren't spying on them individually. And exactly. That sort of thing. I think that's one of the fears people have when they say no to the to my health record mm -hmm. is that they've, they've kind of been maybe misinformed about you know, how yeah. it works and you know the fact that data are, are de-identified and that sort of thing. So people don't know that that's John Smith. They just know that it's a man of this age yeah. you know, from this area. So... Yeah. Anyway, those are all things to think about. Um, <laughs> and then, the, yeah, I, I read a, quite a provocative article, which I'll, I'll finish on, about the role that hospitals play in healthcare management mm. in the future. And the author of this article, his name is Toby Hall, um, and you can find it on the ABC and their, in their health page, uh, suggests that uh, hospitals are going to become less central to managing healthcare and that it'll be decentralised to the to local settings and in, in the house a lot more. And he, and he cites Denmark as an example, which is a much smaller country than Australia, but um, in many ways is considered to be a leader in a lot of social and health type areas, uh, where they, in the last 20 years, they've gone from 98 hospitals down to 32. 
uh, and their health service and health outcomes haven't been impacted at all. If, wow. if, anything, if okay. anything, they've improved so in a, in a lot of measures. Um, so yeah, the idea that primary care would be provided in either local homes or, or clinics, like home doctors, that sort of thing, um, which is I know it's something that happens in France a lot. There's a lot of home doctors that go and visit, so certainly like postnatal and that sort of stuff, mm. care is done in the home setting. Um, and then as our population ages, there's also a lot of patients that prefer to be treated at home and stay at home. They don't want to go into trace into hospital and have to drive in and or get exactly, driven. Exactly, because it'd be really difficult. Yeah, and expensive yeah. to park and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, and, and we do have the technology developing all the time, you know, and things like artificial intelligence and machine learning are sort of helping to drive some of that. Um, so that, you know, doctors can take that technology into the home and quite easily monitor people. And I know a lot of diabetes care and, you know, renal care is happening in, you know, in the home setting now. Yeah, you know, and dialysis. even some cancer care as well right. is happening in home. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, it's really interesting because um, if, if any of, like, I don't know whether you have or whether any of the listeners have, um, but I've looked a little bit into the history of, of doctors and all that kind of stuff. And originally it was at home care. Um, but the reason why they built hospitals and things like that is because the equipment was too big to, to bring with them. So having a centralised point where they could store all of it um, became really, really important, which is why we have hospitals and things like that. So now that technology is evolving and we might be able to bring that stuff with us now, um, it's almost doing a full circle in our history and that mm. doctors now can visit homes instead of having this one big centralised area. Yeah. And I don't think anyone's advocating that you would get rid of hospitals oh, because no. uh, acute problems and critical problems would still need to be managed in a hospital. But I think what they're saying is a big chunk of what happens in a hospital can happen elsewhere. Um, it's just we should reserve hospitals for the really serious cases where they really do need to be in a hospital. And that would help our um, number of beds problem as yeah. well by reducing the number of beds needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So as the population ages, we are going to have to find ways of being more efficient with our health services. There's, there's no question, you know, because more people will be requiring them. Uh, and we're not going to magically come up with more money, you know, out of nowhere for it. So. It's not like we can ask Santa Claus for more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He'll have to get it from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and especially with the risk of disease transmission. Exactly. I don't Santa even know Claus. whether I'd want to be seeing Santa Claus at this point. <laughs> Yeah, all right. Well, I think that probably brings us to the end, Courtney. I think so. Yeah, unless you have anything else. No, I think I think that's no? about it. I think we've covered um, some fairly good Christmas material for our special episode. Yeah, so I guess all that's left to do is just to let people know that we appreciate them getting in touch with us. We do, yes. Thank yeah. you very much for emails and um, contacting us on Twitter yeah. and things like that and listening. Yeah. It's been really fun this year. And always open to, for suggestions on episodes Absolutely. or if people think they've got something they could contribute then we definitely want to hear from you. Please, please um, do. We're always looking for more information. <laughs> and, and you can get hold of us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com and at health means what on Twitter. And that's all for now. I wish everyone a very Merry Christmas yes. and a Happy New Year or Merry Happy Christmas. Holidays. We'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, see, you, see you in January. Right. Thanks. Thanks. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.